Okay, so before you're saying that, um, in case of a, there's an emergency on Earth, if we have to leave Earth and start inhabiting a different planet, how do we farm there? Because plants don't grow in such places, right? If you have seen the movie Martian, uh, yeah. yeah, so how do we farm? What's, what, what are we going to do? So Elon Musk, Tesla's founder, he's trying to go to Mars at any cost. Perhaps he will succeed, but what are we going to do there? It's a barren land. How do we, how do we farm? What do we eat? See, that's what I'm saying. When we go into a container farming on Earth, it's not very difficult to transport that. Yeah, but uh, we have different factors, right? Um, we don't have a fertile soil. We don't have sunlight that is needed in, in a specific way for the plants. So how, what are we going to do? If you bring in the right combination of plants and microorganisms and fungi, you can start making soil. Okay. Because the biomass from the plants will eventually decompose. But the question is that, you know, do we have the insight in understanding plants so deeply? is one of the questions, right? So we have mastered, one of the ways of looking at it is right on Earth, instead of going to Mars, look at Earth. Let's say there are, you know, I, I don't know the exact number, so I'm just going to say, let's say there are about 500,000 species of plants. Mm -hmm. okay. And then you ask the question, how many plants do we use for food and produce and products? It might be, you know, less than a few thousand species. Yeah, yeah. And then if you even narrow the bandwidth and ask, what is the food source for majority of the people on this earth? It might boil down to even less than 50 species. Okay. And then if you look at your own food plate and ask, what is my biodiversity in terms of food I eat on a weekly basis? Let's just take breakfast. Let's say you're a cereal person. Mm -hmm. You have choice between two or three cereals, yeah. right? Maybe oatmeal, uh, cornflakes, wheatlets. Three species. That's your biodiversity, breakfast biodiversity. Yeah. So same thing you can ask, what is your lunch biodiversity? Most likely it's a sandwich or a croissant or, and maybe a little bit of soup. That's again less than five or six species. Mm -hmm. I mean, look at your supper. Imagine if it's a pizza and a glass of Coke. That's the biodiversity limitation in the food. Right. right? So the, I'm using that as an example. So we don't really understand, uh, and forget food. I mean, you should take a lot of our medicine comes from the plants. Yes, um, perhaps more than 90%, I assume, right? Yeah, but now they've started to make synthetic products of the plant derivatives. Right. But still, the original discovery of a lot of the drugs are from plants. Mm -hmm. right? Unless and until it's an antibiotic. Mm -hmm. And there are some even antibiotics that come from antibiotic-like compounds that come from uh, plants. Right. So plants have mastered this because they have to interact with so many organisms, all the way from bacteria to fungi to insects, right, to birds, to, you know, rodents to humans, right? 
monkeys and humans. They have to produce a whole range of compounds. One, to satisfy our senses. So they have to produce pigments to attract. So this is another thing I always think about and I tell kids is that for the plant, the bee and the man are the same. <laughs> for the bee, the plant will produce a beautiful flower with a little bit of sugar in it, nectar. And the bee comes around and says, hey, come here. And the bee thinks the bee is super smart. Okay. So it goes, I have this long proboscis. I'm going to suck all your sugar. And what does the plant do? It taps some pollen on its back and says, carry it. <laughs> In the same way, they do that with bigger organisms. So for a rodent, a herbivore goes and eats his leaves of a plant. The herbivore thinks it's assuming that we are, as the herbivore is like a human and says, I am smart. I, I know what to eat. Right? But when it's eating the leaves, it's eating a lot of seeds. So it goes a few kilometers down and goes and poops there. Now the plant has succeeded in moving from here to there without actually moving. So, there are the movers and there are the, the things that control the movement. So, you can think of plants as controllers of movement. Right? And the controllers of movement is not just in the physical space, but also in the psychological space. And that's where a lot of the psychoactive drugs come. Yes, that's something I wanted to ask you because there is a Another crazy theory that involves psychoactive substances. Yeah. So some people argue that um, plants are producing these chemicals and they are giving it to animals. Yeah. Sort of like in a way that they are trying to influence them, you know? Yeah. Well, do you know what is the biggest drug the plant produces? I don't know. Sugar. <laughs> That's it. Yeah. <laughs> right? The bee injects uh, the, you know, if you give a child, mm -hmm. right, you're going to have a baby soon. If you give a child a few candies, they're happy. <laughs> not, they are not just happy, they are overexcited. You let it keep them entertained for the next two hours. Right. <laughs> the plants, what they do is they give you the sugars mm -hmm. and move your muscles or move the wings of the insects. Mm -hmm. What do you do? You work hard to grow more of it. Yeah. We have to produce food. And so if you look at farming, you know, we have to invest a lot of hours in farming, even though we are technology. Our technologies now have allowed us to make farming very simple, mm -hmm. but it's created a lot of problems because we think we have enough land to just keep growing. So if you go to a plant breeding institute, they'll say, oh, let's just make more plants. But the plants have already put in an equation on the negotiation table. And the equation they have is, every time you grow one of mine more, you'll be taxed heavily a few years down the road. And that heavy taxation is what the carbon tax we are paying now. Okay. It's just the beginning. We will start to tax our own activity. Because every time we move, we are burning carbon, and then we are taxed for it. You can easily visualize how the plant 
has negotiated this already 10 years ago. They've already negotiated it, right? And they put it on the table. We didn't see it. Now the card is coming out. They've thrown this uh, card, which is kind of completely messing our deck of cards, right? There's no way we can challenge it. We can do all the things we want. What will we do? We'll tax each other. And we'll try to squeeze some money out of some poor person and try to become richer. But in the end, we are in the same boat. We can, it's like this. We are in a boat with a big hole. Okay. And the boat is slowly sinking. We are fighting. Who's going to stay in the luxury room versus who's going to stay in the bunk bed? <laughs> we don't have a choice. Eventually, <laughs> we have to come together to fix the leak. If the poor person says, no, 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 I want to stay in the luxury room. I don't have time to fix this. And the rich man says, no, no, no. I have to make sure these poor people don't come here. So I'm not going to fix this. I'm going to try to keep them there. Yeah, yeah. They will collectively sink. Mm -hmm. This is the blind spot that I'm talking about. And who's playing the game? If you really think about it, who's playing the game? Again, it's the intelligence of other organisms, including plants. They are playing the game. They say, they're indirectly telling us, if you think of me as a plant spokesperson, <laughs> just on a humorous note, yeah. Because I've been working with them for the last 35 years. Uh -huh. Think of me as a spokesperson. They are actually talking to people through me, saying that, hey, guys, you have to give me more of my land where I can grow diverse forms so that I can help you. Create more oxygen, yeah. Give more oxygen, make your ecosystem stable make your life sustainable. And if you think you're too smart and you don't want to do that, you, you might say that, oh, well, I have Elon Musk and other guys who's going to go me, take me to Mars. Imagine you're standing in a line to buy the ticket to Mars. Who will be the first person to get the ticket? The person who has a plant with him. Because he's the only guy who can make food. So even before you can think about selling a ticket, the plant already has a place on the on that on that Elon Musk craft. Yeah. They've already see that's what I'm saying. They're it's like a chess game. Okay, we think, oh, I've moved my bishop, but they've already checkmated, removed your king, and put another king there. <laughs> They're playing the tenth game. <laughs> That's how far they are in terms of adapting with the environment. It's not a counterintelligence to ours, but a completely different way of intelligence, which is like a parent and a child. The child will suddenly think, I am super smart. I know how to stand. But the parent has been standing and walking for hundreds of days and maybe months and years. So our relationship to plant is like a child and a parent in many ways. Mm -hmm. We are slowly learning about them. For a long time, we thought we have mastered them. Now we say, oh, we have to grow more trees so to save the environment. But we still think that we have some miracle that we can keep growing our crops just like we do. And we invest a lot of money and pay big scientists to make more food. But nobody wants to really understand the plant. And it's all a side business. Understanding the plant is a side business. 
that's my you know uh, <laughs> merge into the whole thing that, that we should be investing more time in finding alternate ways of using our our resources and intelligence and there are other models of, around us if we if we awaken to those if we don't awaken to those then you will have to look for options in the same space like it's like i always give the example of a key and a street and a lamp so if you have a key that you lost on a street and suddenly the that part of the street is completely dark because of some power outage we treat technology like this we say oh well let's look at the other street because there is lit and we'll search for the key there and we'll convince each other that we will somehow find the key there you will never find the key there the key is in the street where it's dark so we have to expose our ignorance yeah. the example i gave there is that we cannot keep on creating intelligence to solve problems we have to look at our ignorance to fix the problems we're going to create using our intelligence mm -hmm. a real intelligence is to show a light upon the ignorance of our faulty behaviors so that our intelligence will mature in the right direction and so a lot of things you know if you look at the earlier cultures they invested a lot of time in those kind of tools because not because they they somehow had something more different from what we have now is because they don't have didn't have technologies yeah right so they said let's study how our mind is so a lot of cultures invested a lot of time looking at how the mind relates to nature mm -hmm. and if you look at a lot of the literature it is on that you know how the mind relates to nature and then suddenly we think that the now in the scientific world view we think we have somehow discovered neurons mm -hmm. and we say the neurons make up the brain and we think all our awareness and consciousness is in the neurons we don't think you know the the most plausible explanation for our consciousness is more like a radio the radio does not produce albums the radio is, does not have a singer in it the radio does not produce music the radio does not produce news the radio doesn't even have stations all the radio is doing is getting the waves from the stations channeling into it so if you channel into a station where you have just news you can easily come to the world view there is nothing called music somebody else comes and turns the knob and goes to another channel and says oh there's only music there's nothing else right so the example i'm trying to give is our the way we treat our consciousness is like a blind person 10 blind people in a in a room with a big elephant we are all touching one part of it and saying this is consciousness this is consciousness nothing else exists that's another problem because consciousness uh, being reduced to uh, some objective reality as being uh, something very unique humans number one that you know that animals are not conscious or if they're conscious their consciousness is far inferior and because plants don't have any brain they are not conscious see what i mean so we kind of distill out 
a lot of the intelligence that's available for us. And the way we distill it out is by defining consciousness with very narrow bandwidths. So if you open up really and listen very carefully, our brains are just, so the reason why I brought this up is to address psychoactive compounds yeah, yeah. from plants and fungi. Psychoactive compounds can directly affect our neurons or our neurotransmitters. Right, yes. And completely change how we visualize the world. Yeah, so that's the very weird um, aspect of psychoactive substances. The, the, people who the reason it appears weird is because we have defined consciousness in one way. Yeah, because the people who do such, uh, who try so those psychoactive substances, ayahuasca, DMT, all those things. Yeah. Yeah, they, they, they go through a life-altering, profound experience, which they cannot describe in words. You can, they cannot convey that message to somebody who haven't tried it. So, but I'll tell you something. Mm -hmm. The psychoactive compounds is a, I call it a rude intrusion. It's a rude intrusion into your consciousness. Okay. It's a rude intrusion because it's like, uh, you know, the example I think of is, imagine uh, a bunch of monks. Yeah. They are all meditating and, you know, training their minds. Suddenly into the room where they are meditating, you bring about, you know, 20 beautiful belly dancers. And make them dance. Mm -hmm. Do you think the monks will enjoy that? No, they'll be mad. <laughs> not just not mad; they might not even understand why this is going on. Yeah. <laughs> and a lot of times, I, I call that a road intrusion. Is is because the same way the psychoactive compounds mm -hmm. are like that, right? So you need people who are trained to explain to you what's going on yeah. in your mind, right? But even then. I don't think the plants intend, the plants intend, we have discovered this yeah. as part of our endeavor that some cultures use it, but they don't use it like what we use now. Yeah. They use it in very specific contexts. Mm -hmm. They don't look at it as a therapy. They look at it as part of their life. And they actually worship those plants. Yeah. There is a medicine man who respects the plant, who harvests this product at a particular time and day. So if you look, look at a lot of that tradition, yeah. they know exactly, uh, in many ways, when to harvest what and, and how to harvest, how to process it. They have those techniques. Mm -hmm. And those techniques are not coming from the consciousness that is between the two years. Right? They treat their brain like a radio. And they go out into the nature and try to get all those signals. It might not agree with our scientific worldview. Yeah. So what is the compound? What is the compound? Why why is it doing it? We mm. don't have this. This is quackery. You know, we label them very quickly. The reason is we want to be objective. Right. And part of part of our objectification, objectification has a lot of meaning in probing. It, one of the reasons objectification is important is because. That is a tool of analysis, right? It's a tool of discernment, right? Yes. We, uh, discern, we discern different things and we learn about them. Mm -hmm. But when you discern such an extent that you don't know how they work together and you think you have understood it, then that discernment is faulty. 
and that is in a way a lot of the lot of our objective worldview has that problem we discern things we separate them out and then we become like a adolescent kid who says there's nothing else other than this if you die your brain is dead that's only consciousness so it's all in your brain how did it happen how did it begin in the child we don't know the child was born the brain oh the brain was developing and suddenly it became conscious how did the child suddenly become conscious at what point yeah at what point and how do we know that as soon as it is dead it's completely gone because the consciousness exists outside of the brain too right if you think of the metaphor of a radio and the and the waves coming to the radio and tuning in and listening so the reason why i bring that in a very scientific template is because i think the other organisms use very different kinds of consciousness and intelligence one is a chemical consciousness a lot of the bacterial and fungi and plants have a lot of chemical consciousness yeah. that's why they make all kinds of these compounds just like we have thousand million thousand million billion thoughts they have million billion chemicals and those chemicals are not just out there they're like uh, signals from radio stations mm-hmm. and when we tune into it just like when we take that psychoactive compound or when we take aspirin mm-hmm. when we take aspirin aspirin is uh, you know salicylic acid coming from a plant yeah. your headache goes away right magic <laughs> magic if you look at a lot of the compounds morphine right where does it come from originally from a plant right a lot of the compounds what we're doing is by discernment we have understood okay they have some properties that will affect our neurons exactly they interact with our brain in in some way that which makes you wonder whether there are receptors specifically designed for you know accepting all these chemicals in the brain the reason is the, the way they the, if you look at the evolution of these compounds the psychoactive compounds okay. the underlying basis of a lot of these compounds are so we talked about briefly about plant and animal evolution uh-huh. but if you really think about it there is no evolution of one organism per se right they're always co-evolving as one structure is forming in the plant world there's a structure that is forming in the animal world right? and so there is this kind of coevolution and the coevolution is where all these compounds come and so if you look at a lot of these compounds these compounds are uh, there are several compounds in plants which mimic our hormones estrogens they call phytoestrogens and a lot of these compounds which mimic our hormones so they change our endocrine how we signal to different parts of the brain when we are hungry when we are satisfied you know and things like that mm-hmm. but going to the mental realm there are a lot of compounds which mimic neurotransmitters and when they mimic neurotransmitters they can bypass certain interactions and thereby completely changing our perception of where, what pain and pleasure is right so the change are completely our perception and so how we put things together 
is completely different. So when you take a, a, a DMT or some of these LSD, you know, from the from the fungi, yeah. um, what what basically you're doing is you're completely fractalizing your worldview. It appears as fractals, and if you look at a lot of the artwork that comes from you know LSD artists, yeah, you'll have ten thousand eyes, or you'll have you know ten thousand hands. Patterns, yeah. Patterns, but patterns are related to either body parts or sense organs. Or you'll have an eye in the in the forehead, right? And then you'll have many reflections, right? Or you'll have morphing of the human and the animal form. A lot of that comes from our visual cortex. Yeah. yeah. Right? And so what so our visual cortex has evolved very dramatically to adapt with how um, you know, co-evolve with how things happen outside of us. Okay, so uh, when when such things happen, what really happening is um, inside of our brain, we are creating these uh, uh, false realities, right? I don't know if you want to call it false realities. Mm-hmm. The way we work is, you know, and the other in, important concept in, in evolution of form right, is that we have many modules. Right? So when you have, uh, think like you are a, a life science engineer. Mm-hmm. Right? If you go into a, a let's say you're, you are in a car assembly plant, mm-hmm. you get these different modules. Right? And the modules come together on an assembly chain and slowly they put together. And eventually it all functions as one whole thing. Right. And the person who's driving the car is not thinking, Am I am I working on the engine or the steering wheel or this or that? He's just using it. Yeah. In the same way, our brains are just using the modules. Mm-hmm. But if you go back into your brain structure mm-hmm. and the the functional brain structure, mm-hmm. it's all modules. Mm-hmm. So you have the visual cortex, you have the taste cortex, you have the you know muscle you know kinesthetic movement cord. You have all these different olfactory, and all of these have to come together. And so we have a kind of a processing system which allows us to put things together. And a lot of times these are in sync because we are not hyperactivating any one uh, particular uh, part of the module. But what happens when you take a psychoactive drug is, but one of the ways we keep this thing, uh, modules from not falling apart and have an identity the reason you have this clear identity, I am this, yeah. is because we put the modules together and we have a thought process which keeps it working in a particular way. Yeah. And a lot of times that is also a problem because you can't change. You're, you're bonded by your habits. You're chained to your habits. And a lot of, you know, if you look at change management and anything, they affect, they, they always talk about your, you know, awareness. Yeah. I don't know if you've heard of this thing called ADCAR. I don't know. You've probably heard of it. So in change management, they have this thing called ADCAR. ADCAR is an acronym. ADCAR stands for awareness, desire, uh, knowledge, action, and reinforcement. Mm -hmm. So awareness is the top thing. And the awareness is through the senses. So when they want you to change, they say, okay, we have a new awareness. This company no more is producing shoes, but they're producing socks. Mm -hmm. So because we are now no longer producing shoes, the awareness has changed. 
then so therefore your desires have to change you cannot say i will only work with leather you have to learn with work to with fabric so your desire to work with things will change uh-huh. then your knowledge structure will change you know you're not making a architectural module for a shoe but rather looking at the socks and the different sizes the length of the socks all kinds of things what material is more suitable for that right and then your actions will be the machines and modalities you have that you use right and then you have to reinforce it because if you don't reinforce it you'll go back to the wrong awareness okay so i used that change management as an example to show that a lot of our learning and relearning is modular so awareness is through senses mm-hmm. desire is some kind of emotion right uh, knowledge is something repository that we all agree upon and accumulate right action is something we do together mm-hmm. and reinforcement is again part of the awareness of telling back again to us we have changed so we are trying to shuffle the modules in a very superficial way and putting it together in a new way so we can collectively work together mm-hmm. but in real life we do that all the time if we do something and if our spouse doesn't agree with it and if the spouse gives you a feedback you say okay i can fix that part of my behavior mm-hmm. you won't change yourself completely right right yeah you'll say i'll still listen to music i'll still do all these other things but this one yes i will try to adjust it mm-hmm. that very notion tells you that it gives you a super confidence in keeping your identity intact and changing in function so this modular structure is deeply embedded in evolution not just in your brain in the way your body is put together in the way the plant's body is put together and if you want to think of it as a module of a body look at your body you have a head and then you have vertebrae each one of your vertebrae looks very similar they are all segments and if you want to compare it to modules you can think of a a worm if you look at an earthworm earthworm has segments that body plan they call it plan plan means something that is an architectural module okay. that plan is deeply embedded in how animals design their bodies just like that for plants they always think in terms of how many leaves to produce each one is a module it's repeated it's growing repeatedly so you can see how it's a very modular architecture so when we talk about a living organism the organism is not just made of organs and tissues and cells but also the architectural modules which allows them to build structures in a particular way mm-hmm. that's an important part of evolution and adaptation because now you can change one body part without affecting the others you don't have to affect the head but if you you can affect the thoracic segment you can have a wing instead of a limb and therefore you can become an insect instead of a worm and so same body plan can be used to form vertebrae mm-hmm. but with more elaborations in terms of bones and other things that comes with it so you can see so the the modular the reason i thought about it or talked about it is when you have modules it's like again coming back to an engineering framework it's like a lego right if you are if your child is given one toy the child can only play with it yeah but if you give the boy uh, or the girl 
a box of thousand pieces of Lego. Then the child will go to the drawing structures and say, I can use these blocks to build these. I can use these same blocks to build another thing. That's how evolution works in the larger scheme of things. So it's like a, a box of Legos. But at some point, you, you need an architectural drawing. Otherwise, the child would not know how to build a crane out of these Lego pieces. In the same way, the architectural... So in evolution, the architectural plan is also evolving. Right? But it's conserved to a large extent. The segmentation pattern is conserved. What evolves is how you can arrange these segmentations. So this spills over into your brain architecture too. So how your brain works. And so the plant can affect just a part of your brain. And so we adapted to work with plants as animals is because we were able to change just part of our behavior. Say, okay, I will eat these carbohydrates from these seeds and roots and other and tubers of potato. And that gives me energy so I can digest the food, but I won't be taking all these other compounds, which, which is psychoactive, and completely disturb my worldview. Unless and until I want it for recreational purposes or later, now we are doing it for you know, getting better view of the world and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But for most part, we, are, in that way, our intelligence is evolved, right? And that's the, the evolution of that intelligence is is in that direction of having understood this at a scientific level. But the blind spots are equally equally or much more in number. And to uncover that, you know, we don't set aside resources. We don't think it is important. And that is the, you know, so we go through the struggle of making many mistakes and having many people, you know, affected by it and then try to reset it, right? So one of the things we can do as part of a learning process is to include the knowledge base that you get from you know, larger concepts like evolution, like organization from biological systems, okay. like about adaptation, how plants adapt to, it's not just plants, right? It's, all these are a wealth of knowledge and we can uh, resource that. But a lot of times these are just in textbooks and these are just in um, in universities and institutions for commercialization, to do research, to get something to commercialize. Right? And most of the scientists would not talk about these things because, not because they don't know uh, or maybe they don't investigate in this direction because they're so caught up in the process of trying to apply for grants and making the research work and but I somehow unplugged from that long ago because I realized that's a big trap. So my career track has been to understand, first I told you about flowers, I studied flowers, then meristems, then embryos, where these meristems are formed. And then in the last few years, I've been studying roots, mainly with reference to stress. Because I think that these organs, um, the tips of these meristems, can interpret stress. Okay, um, also compare it with general concepts of biological stress because that's a very interesting field. Because even in our own bodies, if you look at the endocrine axis, yeah, which allows you to go through a daily rhythm, yeah, right. So 
in the night you go to rest in the morning you get up and then you're active in the morning okay. your body wants nutrients and by the time you reach late evening your body is going to a resting phase right. and imagine you know give you know take away 200 years from the last 200 years if you take about 200 years we didn't have lamps and lights and things yeah. like that right so by six o'clock, everything is dark, assuming it's a, you know, tropical country. If it's in Canada, you know, maybe at four o'clock. <laughs> so lights are gone. Your mind is shut down, right? You're okay. not trying to do things. You're not trying to read. You're not trying to do things. And so you're following the rhythm of nature. Exactly. And this is another thing that as our intelligence and knowledge increases, we have a lot of artificial systems, which makes our intelligence our natural adaptive intelligence mm -hmm. very artificial. Right. Ideally, by this time, we should be shutting off all the lights and we should be in a darker place. Exactly. And then eventually our body will go to rest. Exactly. If you are ideally living in a, a you know, a hundred years ago, by, by five o'clock, your food should be done because I don't think you can start cooking at eight o'clock. Because there's no light. <laughs> no light. And you can't store the food in a fridge. There's no fridge. You have to have fresh food. right? So you can see how just by looking at nature or the cycles, natural cycles, you can reset your behavior. You can have all these technologies, but you can reset your behavior, right? You can still follow the rhythms of nature. You can say, I will finish my supper by six. And I'll have my food only at eight o'clock in the morning not anything in between. That immediately is a healthy reset. But a lot of times, many people cannot do that. So you see the struggle of how we have adapted and grown together as a society, that we have moved away. And the reason I brought this out was because it connects back to stress. Uh -huh. And stress is another very important part of biological organization. Because stress is a signal from the environment to the organism. Uh -huh. as a checkpoint, saying that, hey, your behavior does not match with the reality of your surroundings. So stress is a very important concept, and that's what I've been engaged with for the last two and a half years. And the way you, if you look at stress, stress is not a problem. Stress in biology is a concept. And the concept is the reason it's a concept is because it connects the environment to the organism. Right. And how you react to the stress. Right. But to react to stress, you have to have a system in place. And that's where these endocrine systems, hormonal systems come in in your body. So and if you're. In regard to the plants, specifically to roots, have you noticed any um, the reaction to the stress? The, 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 the reason why I got into uh, <coughs> roots is because of a fundamental, uh, again, what I think is a, uh, a biased view of how we look at embryos. Mm -hmm. So if you have a single cell, the single cell would divide and form a body plan, an embryo. Right? So if a single cell in the mother's womb, give it uh, nine months, will become a complete baby. Right? But it's going through stages. Uh -huh. So at three months, if you go, you'll just see a, a bigger head and a small tail, just like 
a fish, right? Yeah. And then eventually you get arms and then you get legs and then you get a bigger head with eyes and you see the baby's orientation changing. And you see the whole process going on inside the mother's womb. It's a phenomenon. Right. right? It's a beautiful phenomenon that we see. Yeah. And it makes the, 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 the growth of the baby so secure. The reason why I was bringing that up is if you if you start looking at embryos in animals, yeah. they start with a single cell uh-huh. and they become a young individual uh-huh. by the time the embryo is fully mature uh-huh. into a fetus or a baby. Yeah. The baby does not say, I will grow my arm after coming up. The arms, the legs, the eyes, everything, everything is in place. Same with, a, you know, if you take a, a, a mouth elephant. Everything is formed and the baby just comes out. A giraffe. Bird. Birds also, if you take birds, you know, most of it is formed. They might form a few more feathers, but the wings and the legs and the head is already formed. Right? For the feathers, yeah. Only when you come into insects, you see some metamorphosis. Lovely. See, so met- I use the word metamorphosis because, again, that's an important concept in understanding evolution. Because morphology is formed. Morph is and metamorphosis is changing form. Yes. So in the insects, you have this larval stage. If you take a butterfly, you have a larval stage, you have a pupil stage, and then you have a flying butterfly stage. Yes. That is controlled by hormones. Okay. Specific hormones which control that transition. But what has happened in an organism which makes the baby completely and then is presented to the environment? As soon as the baby comes into the environment, the baby has to adapt. In the case of a human baby, it has to open its eyes and say, I don't know this world and start to cry. And then it has to see where it can get its food. Initially, it's helpless. Then it gets food and then after some time, the father appears in front. They says, who is this strange human being standing or strange thing standing in front of me? Because they might relate to the mother more because <clears throat> the whole baby is part of the mother. So the father is some first step into a strange environment. right? And then the father becomes, grows fonder and fonder. And then they realize that, okay, this is the dual parenting that's going on here. And they start to learn. But for a long time, the baby is just happy, just uh, lying down and just uh, smiling and kicking its hands and legs without any coordination. Mm-hmm. At some point, there's a coordination, it starts to grow. And then it's a whole new ball game, right? It has learned a completely new thing. Exactly. But the reason why I brought baby as an example is it's not just doing things with its arms and legs, its brain is realizing. Its brain is growing and allowing those coordinations to happen based on triggers. And those are growth steps. And that the reason that the other reason is growth and stress are related. Because you don't know what you're going to grow into. Uh A baby, if you say, you know, it's time for you to get up, it's extremely stressful for the baby. It might be growth once it stands up, mm-hmm. but every time it stands up, it falls. It falls. It's extremely stressful. Once it is three years old or four years old, you buy a cycle and say, hop on it and ride it. Child is extremely reluctant. 
first time the child wants to go to school the child will cry so what i'm trying to say is that the growth and stress are related related yeah right in the plants growth and stress are coupled in the animals growth and stress are uncoupled in many ways because our sensory system allows us to uncouple that and that's why it's artificial what is natural is when the growth and stress are connected because as soon as you get a stress signal you adapt and grow whereas we keep growing and manage the stress mm-hmm. and to manage the stress we have developed a lot of systems one is the hormonal system the other one is the immune system right we can manage pathogens right so these are evolutionary steps towards artificial intelligence or anthropocentric or human intelligence so we build these frameworks during evolution immune system um all these and the, and the the reason why i brought that was in your daily system of doing things stress access is natural because when you wake up in the morning your brain is triggering a particular hormone which wakes up your endocrine which makes you want to take food as soon as you take food you digest the food if the sugar is in your blood that's stress your insulin system has to take care of it if it doesn't you have a problem yeah <laughs> so the nutrition itself becomes a stress signal and then by the end of the day you know and the way it is clocked is there is a compound produced in your brain which is the origin of that stress pathway so it's called the stress axis okay. and that that whole thing is called biological stress right but when the stress leads to adaptation in behavior which means that you realize okay i have enough sugar in the blood i'll stop eating instead of taking more and more sugar then your insulin can deal with it your body can go to rest it adapts and goes back to the next day mm-hmm. but if it is not if it is under severe stress put in a work environment where it is facing many challenges for example instead of having that one cup of coffee it has 10 cups of coffee and each cup of coffee has two spoons of sugar so by the end of the day there's a whole lot of sugar in the body that is causing what is called distress so under normal conditions you have a gap between uh, uh, the stress and adaptation that gap is called u stress uh-huh. which is true stress u means true right when you don't have the gap and you are very careless about that as an endeavor you end up with distress so you are distressed right and then the distress can lead to adaptation or it can lead to a breakdown right when you have breakdown you have this post traumatic stress disorder we call it ptsd in the human behavior sense right but distress is all around in many forms and we throw it back onto each other in a social environment right we get frustrated with something we share our stress with somebody else right so what i'm saying is that the, that's an important part of evolution because that's a signal that is used to convert um the biological process Mm-hmm. why the growth or distress and growth towards adaptation 
is eustress, which allows you to go to the next stage of growth or next step in growth. Whereas distress keeps you, stops you from growing and causes trauma. So that is an important part of evolution because that allows, because if you look at how species evolve, so when they get into a new environment and now they have to become a different form after some generations, if they cannot, either due to physical constraints, which means that they don't have the organis organizational structure to adapt, yeah. or they have the organizational structure, but they cannot receive the signal, the stress signal, and convert it into eustress, that will lead to the collapse of the organism. So when we have coevolution and within our endeavor, our way of doing things is causing a lot of distress. Mm -hmm. To a lot of other species. And that is the other disruption we are causing when we expand our empire. Okay. view. Mm -hmm. We start to expand it. And, but that is the third important concept in evolution that growth and adaptation and stress as, and that's what I've been working on from the plant concept that the plants can bend their roots in different ways and produce roots from different places. So for example, a, a climber can produce the roots in the shoot on the top, right? So they, they, they adapt and they use roots to adapt and grow. Mm -hmm. So the way I got to this, uh, uh, the understanding of this is through using how, you know, for example, a group of cells buried so deep in the soil, how does it read its environment and decide what to do? That was the question I pursued for the last you know, several years. That's through chemical signals? There's a lot of things. There's internal signaling. Mm -hmm. And then even if you look at the stem cell populations, so the stem cell population themselves are, um, so if you look at a stem cell, stem cell is controlling growth. Mm -hmm. right? And so one of the important things about stem cells is they don't, uh, there's a term in, uh, in, in biology which is called differentiation. Right? When a cell takes up, differentiates from that pool of cells yeah. and becomes part of the root or part of the skin in the human or part of the blood or whatever it is. Right? So that is differentiation. Mm -hmm. What the stem cells do is they don't differentiate into the organs that they will form. Yeah. They produce daughter cells. Mm -hmm. And the daughter cells are the ones that will eventually differentiate. Mm -hmm. But that pool of cells is retained. And that's what keeps the plant growing. And that's what keeps our body functioning. Because okay. you have a pool of cells. But that pool of cells has to now integrate a lot of information. From the growth hormones in your body to the stress signals from the outside. Mm -hmm. okay. And by combining the two, these cells have mastered how to become, remain quiet, completely quiet, till it's needed to go. If you don't master that, you have cancer. So cancer is a mismanagement of that group of cells. Yeah. When they don't know how to manage the, the growth signal and the stress signal coming, they kind of inflammatory growth. Yeah. Inflammatory growth occurs when you have an injury. So if you have a cut, you have inflammation. Yeah. And the inflammation, what it does is it, it allows regeneration. Okay. 
So if you have a cut and after five days you come back, the cut is gone. Your natural healing systems have sutured all that perfectly. Yeah. And that's a, you know, a phenomenal process. Yeah. You know, it's a complete wedge in your finger. After five days, somehow everything is seamlessly stitched. The reason it works is because the first thing that happens is inflammation. Your inflammation, the immune system is going to protect that region. Uh-huh. But it's also going to trigger some of the cells around to restructure their behavior. Uh-huh. That's a kind of cellular adaptation. So inflammation is a cellular adaptation. So you can see that the concept of adaptation, stress, and uh, growth works at a cellular level, at an organ level, mm-hmm. at an organismal level, and at a social level. Wow, okay. So those are deeply embedded concepts because even in the social context, you can think about the same thing, right? When you do have undue stress on a particular part of the social system, there's going to be inflammation there. Yeah. Right? And then you have to deal with all the abnormal growth that happens because of the inflammation. Uh-huh. And what that does is prevents adaptation. And then the question obviously comes, who determines that, right? In a social system, that becomes who controls that, right? But in the biological systems, it is it is a natural process. Uh-huh. So we can learn from those concepts. You know, this so these are deeply embedded concepts which we don't think about it outside of the lab environment. And we think it's only meant for the elites or people doing research. Mm-hmm. But there's a lot of these concepts which can be brought forth into a social discussion or into a change of behavior or you know, some kind of mutual understanding about how we can make things better. Right? So the whole endeavor is to allow us our intelligence to overcome these problems mm-hmm. and make things better. Okay. Right? So that's Okay, so we've been talking for more than two hours, I believe now. Yeah, I think it's been a long time. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so let me ask you one last question before. Sure. We, um, so I just wanted to ask you about, uh, okay, let's just uh, say God or uh, creator or yeah. the intelligence behind everything, whatever yeah. you want to call it. So do you believe in uh, such an entity or is it all uh, made, made, up, made by our thoughts? or in order to explain everything that is unexplainable, we need such a thing. Or what is your take on it? See, as far as in, in as far as biology goes, see, as far as our pure biology goes, we know that uh, a lot of the information that needs needed to assemble the organism comes from a genetic information. Yeah, right. That allows us to grow out of our earlier framework that there has to be a creator to create things. Okay. But how did it start? We still haven't had all the answers. But if you look at viruses, take, for example, the COVID. Yeah, it's yeah. an RNA virus. Right, yeah. Right. So we know that RNA is a message in our body. Right. right. And so we know that life could have emerged from a chemical soup. But how did this thing put get together and start? We don't have the answers yet. 
but yeah. so, uh, so when you say that life could have emerged from a soup of chemicals uh, the funny thing is it only happened once right as as far as we know it no it, it could have happened several times multiple times yeah but, uh, if it happened multiple times there could have been multiple lines of you know life life kind of things you know instead of we we only have we only have backtraced into one single cell organism so far right yeah because that was successful yeah okay okay so what was so that's why in evolution that's why i was telling you about earlier forms mm-hmm. so when one form becomes stable when the first form of uh, just an rna became a stable cellular structure then you had cells it was initially bacterial cells initially microbial mm-hmm. cells right so the huge branch of our uh, tree of life is microbes uh, we call them uh, prokaryotes and so a lot of that is from the earlier forms of life and then we know that the prokaryotes became eukaryotes and then we know that certain eukaryotes were able to cohabit other eukaryotes within them that's how we got mitochondria that's how we got chloroplasts yeah. so we know the trajectories the science tells us a lot of it can be explained through the genetic material uh-huh. through the assembly of these forms right stable assembly of forms and the the adaptation of those forms to build bigger and better or more adaptive structures so, so when you look at that trajectory uh-huh. then the concept of uh, you know god coming in and putting in life about you know 5000 years ago is can be easily put away uh, no yeah forget about 5000 but the initial the initial happening the initial happening from that soup mix of chemicals yes uh, there is one theory that it possibly came from the space from outer space from from an asteroid alien life yeah but eventually it doesn't matter not alien i don't think life would have come mm-hmm. uh the asteroid might have brought in some chemical constituents which That's triggered certain changes mm-hmm. but if you look at the actual concept of how life would have emerged Uh, the most plausible that i've seen is that life did not evolve in water itself mm-hmm. life evolved in the boundary of water and land mm-hmm. okay where you have phases when the water level decreased mm-hmm. allowing concentration of chemicals mm-hmm. so one of the first things that happened in life was there was a concentration of certain kinds of chemicals okay and that concentrated environment allowed certain reactions possible based on other environmental triggers like lightning or some other kind of heat or whatever right mm-hmm. like in a thermal vent you have a lot of heat you have, if you if you're near a lightning zone you have a lot of light right a lot of high power voltage light so all these can trigger some very strange reactions so they might have formed some nitrogenous compounds because a lot of the earlier chemicals you needed was nitrogenous you needed dna and then the dna had to or the rna and then the rna became dna and then you had ways to form proteins and then if you look at the evolution of these messages themselves they are highly modular so if you go open a basic book on the genetic structure you can see the form of that structure is like a language it has certain basic codes of four letters it's like an mrna is just saying 
you're saying about the mRNA. Yeah, mRNA and DNA. If you take a DNA, and a DNA is made up of genes, and a lot of what called what is called as intragenic DNA. So if you take, let's say, let's stick to genes, and if you take a gene, a gene codes for a particular protein. Right. And so the in-between structure, so the, the DNA is the gene, and that is transcribed. Right? It's transcribed into a messenger RNA. And the messenger RNA is then read through a machinery called the ribosomes right. to produce proteins. So how does it read it? If you look at the DNA, DNA has these what is called as uh, bases. Yeah. And there are four bases. And the four bases can be arranged in strings. It can be repeats of the same or a mixture of those, right? And different combinations can give you a whole bunch of these codons. Yeah. And so the codons code for about 20 different amino acids. And what the ribosomes do is read these codons and match the right kind of amino acid yeah. to form a polymer, which we call a peptide. And then eventually the peptide is folded to form the protein. Right. Right? And the protein takes up different conformational structures. Some of the proteins, they function as switches for the DNA. Right? They allow the, the proteins themselves would bind to DNA. Mm -hmm. And they usually bind to regions outside of the gene. And th those regions are called switches or promoters. Mm -hmm. So by binding to that, they can activate or repress that gene. Uh -huh. okay. And thus, now you have a regulatory mechanism of when and how to produce those proteins. Yeah. So if you take your, our bodies, you know, if you take a skin cell versus a, you know, a blood cell, a white blood cell, right? so the same 46 chromosomes are there in both the cells. Uh -huh. But only certain genes are turned on in the skin cell versus only certain other genes are turned on. And the reason why they are able to do that is because, again, this kind of adaptive evolution where certain genes are turned on by certain mechanisms and certain genes are turned off. So our biology has gone very deep into that. So that's our power of our intelligence, that we can get rid of a lot of ignorance, that we don't need somebody to come and put this together. There's no clock maker. Yeah. A clock is self-assembled. Who started the first clock? Then again, you see that the clock itself changed from one form to the other. First, you had just a, a, a clock with, uh, you know, 12, 3, 6, and 9. Right. And then somebody come and divide, divide it into 12, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5. And then somebody put a big handle. Somebody put a small handle. Not somebody. Right? That was a necessity to read time. The okay. same way there was a necessity for adaptation. So adaptation, coevolution. Why are they adapting? Because they're co-evolving with other organisms. Uh -huh. So you see how interconnected the web is. So when you start to see the assembly line very clearly, then the question of this, the common and common parlance, what people talk about. Uh, is religion, does religion have a role in explaining these or is there a God involved? In yes, yeah. Okay. You can easily put it away. Uh -huh. Right. But I I think God is a social construct. 
God as a social construct taps into a very core part of our um, the way we grow. What we don't know, we learn by having faith in it. So that's where the word faith comes. Faith is a situation where you trust the situation, the person, and the agency to allow you to grow. And so your mother is your first God, mm-hmm. right? Because she gives you milk. And then she teaches you how to smile. Yeah. She teaches you how to laugh, how to take care. Your dad comes and says, get up. He teaches you another form of learning. Right? Uh-huh. So, and then some neighbors, neighbors, kids, older kid will come and say, hey, we can play this. They can learn. Right? So, but there is a bond that is built through faith. Uh-huh. Yes, sir. And that bond is a very important part of human imagination and creativity. Uh-huh. And so no matter how atheistic we can be, even the very atheistic logic can become very religious. Because at some point you'll have to say, I don't believe in God. You cannot <laughs> say, I don't, there's no God. I don't believe. There's yeah. a belief. <laughs> Yeah, you have to say, I don't I don't believe in God. And then if push come to shove, you'll say there's no God. So where do you stand in, in the spectrum? What, what is your position? My position is God, you know, is a kind of metaphoric mm-hmm. uh, learning tool that our brains have used in different ways. Okay. Right now, the God in human society is science. Mm-hmm. We have put it way up in the pedestal there. Okay. Right? But we can use that God to execute many other ideas. Uh-huh. Just like in the previous generations of gods, uh-huh. they have executed thinkers. Uh-huh. Science can execute faith-based thinkers. Or, you know, I'm not saying that we should support religions and, you know, uh, they are on equal footing with science and all that. But what I'm saying is, Science, that's a part of human ignorance. Mm-hmm. Right. Not being able to entangle with faith because that is part of growth. And we are at a phase of growth. Mm-hmm. We are never completely mature as a society. We are in an adolescent phase. And we are asking questions. But we don't trust anybody else except ourselves. Right. That is a, a shackled position. Uh We are kind of suppressing any kind of that faith element by using, especially in the decision-making process, we are using um, the big hand of the science saying that you know, that's the false debate. The false debate is between the so-called religious groups which says well, God created this thing. Why are you saying that God is not there? And the science people are saying, oh, your God is garbage. And part of that God being garbage is, it's like I call it throwing baby out with the bathwater. Because the God comes with faith. And faith allows you to learn new things. Because that's how we learn. We have to have faith in certain things. But the question is, what do you trust? That is the frontier of human knowledge, right? That's the frontier. 
the frontier is what do you trust? Do you trust all your actions to solve your problems? Or do you trust that the intelligence is all around you? And that you are a, a radio station tuning into different forms of awareness. And I think I am in that position that you are just a modality of having things come together to tune into a particular radio station. So don't get too hung up on it. Yeah. Tune the radio so you listen to other tunes. And don't come and cut the hand of the person who knows how to turn the knob because they might lead you to the other stations. And that might be based on faith. Right? That yeah. might be just faith. They'll say, oh, what if there is another station? Imagine you have, a, I don't know if you know, shortwave radio. Have you used shortwave radio? What? <laughs> shortwave, shortwave radio. Medium wave and shortwave. If you take a radio, right? Yeah. It's not common now because we are all using phones. Yeah, nobody uses radios anymore. <laughs> yeah, but if you look at a radio, you have medium wave and short wave. Mm -hmm. and then you have ham. Have you heard of ham radio? Yeah, the, the people who use it as a hobby or something. Yeah, yeah but yeah. that's to tap into different wavelengths. Wavelengths, yeah. Right? So if you believe only in medium wave, mm -hmm. you will cut anybody who says there's a short wave. Exactly, we are not hearing that. And the short wave guy will cut anybody who has a medium wave. Sorry, and eventually people will say there's no radio. <laughs> because they cut each other's hand. There's no possibility of them examining, allowing each other the freedom to say, hey, let's tune in the radio. It'll come to a point where we say, oh, to heck with it, there's no radio. <laughs> because every time somebody touches the knob, we cut their hands. We want to listen to only one thing, and that's our intelligence. That's the handicap. We have to realize that there is awareness and consciousness of different wavelengths. Right? That's and a very nice way of putting it, yeah. Yeah, because if you do that, you give yourself the freedom to use that station you are in, because that is the place where you're comfortable. Right? Right, right. You can learn many things. But don't get hung up on it. When you get hung up on it, then you, you become destructive. Because imagine, you like um, uh, Aerosmith, you know, I forget the song. You like, I don't know which band you like, you know, some Western band, you know, you like the song very much. Okay. Yeah. You tune into that. Mm -hmm. And let's say your wife comes and says, no, I don't want to listen to this. I want to listen to the softer music. And she wants to come and turn them on. And then uh, someday later, your brother, or your sibling, your friend comes. No, I want to listen to something else. If you prevent them from tuning to the other stations, or if you rather tell them this radio has only this music <laughs> because you don't want them to change the knob, then there's no way you can listen to the other tunes. Right. You will never listen. Mm -hmm. Right? And so that's the challenge we face. The challenge we face as a society is how do we learn to listen first to each other and then listen to the intelligence that's all around us. Whatever we want to call it, we can call it, you know, some people call it divine intelligence, you know. Yeah, yeah, they can do whatever they want with it. But it has to make some meaning. It's not, it should not be just be a ritual. And in that sense, you know, since you asked me the question about where do I lead most, 
I lean most towards uh, uh, you know, Buddha's teachings. Because uh, the reason I say that is because there are texts that you can go to in, in uh, hard, you know, real Buddhist texts. Mm -hmm. And some of them are difficult to decode. But if you can persist and learn, there are a lot of tools which allows you to train your mind. Like tuning into the environment. Uh, tuning into yourself first. Because that's a good place of learning what is your blind spot. Right. right. So you're leaning on, let's say you're leaning too long on too strong on one side. You know how to balance it. When you balance it, you see that, oh, well, this is just one view. There are many other views, right? And then your mind becomes much more neuroplastic. So if you want to bring it back into the scientific realm, your brain actually becomes more neuroplastic when you, when you first calm it down and then when you start to discern and then when you start to concentrate it. When you can keep it really calm. If you're really calm on a stormy sea, you can see far away. But if your boat is being whipped around by the stormy sea, there's no way you can navigate the boat. Right. And so our minds are like that. Because the way the sense organs are put together, we are in a stormy ocean and our boats are not stable. One thing we can easily do is build a better boat. Right? So we can navigate those waters better. Or we can just blame the ocean and say we can't do anything. About it. But I think we can build better boats. And better boat is the mind you have, which makes it much more recipient to all the turbulence. And say, okay, which direction is safer? How do I cross this rough waters? Right. And so, so there are tools available. Mm -hmm. But you know, because you know, if you take Buddhism, then it becomes a religion. Then people again start to ask, okay, Buddha believed in rebirth. So whatever he's saying is wrong. Right. You have to ask in what context Buddha brought in rebirth. You have to ask, what are the main things he teaches about? And so from that, I, I realized Buddha was a very, uh, he was a teacher way ahead of his time. Uh -huh. Because he focused on, you know, if you, I talked about stress, growth, adaptation. His fundamental approach to training your mind is based on these three. Uh -huh. Right? The first thing is he asks about is, what kind of stress are you causing by not doing certain things or by doing certain things? This is self-inflicted. If it is self-inflicted, you can observe it. When you observe it very clearly, you can change your behavior, you can adapt, and you can overcome that. As a result of which, you grow and adapt, overcoming the stress. Mm -hmm. That's his fundamental teaching. So if you want to distill all his teaching into fundamental concepts, you can basically, he says, there is four noble truths. So if you take any classic Buddhist text, they'll tell you this. The four noble truths and eightfold path. Uh -huh. Yeah. Heard, heard about that, yeah. Yeah. So, but four noble truths is called noble for a reason. It's because he says, no matter what happens, these will remain true. Your view might change, your action might change. So the Eightfold Path involves 
you know, there are the eightfold is the eight modalities, right? So each modality has a right and a wrong. So there's a view, your view of the world that can be right and wrong. So right view, wrong view. So right view is the first step. Right resolve, what kind of intention you develop based on your view, how to interact with the world. Same thing we talked about, environment, stress, and the biological system. It's very similar. So you have a view, and then what resolve does the view allow you to make? Then third comes is right speech. How do you want to communicate that back to yourself and to others? Mm-hmm. Internal speech and external speech. So right view, right resolve, right speech. And then he said, right action. What kind of action you want to take based on that? And a lot of the actions are, some of the actions are not to do certain things is also an action. See, that's the intelligence of his teaching where he says, you don't have to think, that's where renunciation comes. So if you listen to Buddha's teachings, a lot of times they talk about renunciation, giving up, being a monk and all that stuff. It's not just a foolish or foolhardy thing he's talking about. What he's talking about is the renunciation is the actions you don't do. There are a lot of actions you do which cause suffering. So you, you have, you know, from there are many things you can stop doing, right? So he talks about that the right action, right? So then there's a few more. So it goes right view, right draw, right speech, right action, then right livelihood. What kind of, where do you get your energy from? Uh Your money and your livelihood. Where do you get it from? Right livelihood, right? Uh Then right effort. How much effort you put in? If it is the wrong thing you're doing, you might not as well put in effort to do that. Uh If it is something very good, you put in the right amount of effort to get benefit from that, mm-hmm. right? And the last two is related to actually training the mind. The last two is right mindfulness. So you become mindful of what? Of your view, of your resolve. Why do you become mindful? To make sure it's right or wrong. So mindfulness is kind of encompassing. Uh-huh. I see. Because it is encompassing all the other six steps you went through. And then you finally come to right concentration, mm-hmm. which is that after becoming mindful, you let, you trust, you have faith in your system of learning. You say, I'm not going to judge at all. I'm not going to call this right or wrong. I'm just going to concentrate and just watch. So the mindfulness and concentration have to go together. Mm-hmm. You have to become mindful of certain things and Purposefully not become mindful of certain other things so that it doesn't distract you because you want to get to where? You want to get to concentration. Right, right. And then that concentration also can be right and wrong because you can have a wrong concentration. So even that he qualifies with right concentration. But these are the eightfold path and these will change depending on your worldview, whether you want to you know, have a divine life or a or a manly or a normal life where you want to generate wealth and help people, or you want to help the society, or you want to solve some much bigger problems, these views and actions will change. Mm-hmm. I see. But the noble truths are much more fundamental. They never so change. That, yeah, that's why it's called four noble truths. Mm-hmm. Because it refers to stress and also suffering. Suffering is not understanding stress. So that's how it's coupled. So stress is very biological. 
but suffering is biological and mental. Okay, so there are two S's. One S is the stress, your interaction, the organism's interaction with the environment and how it adapts and grows and how it doesn't adapt and not grow. Mm -hmm. That is stress. Yeah. The suffering is how uh, the stress is not understood. Because if you don't understand it, there's suffering. Right, right. So that's why he defined it as four noble truths. And the four noble truths are simple, which is that there is stress or suffering. At any point of awareness, you can understand that. There is stress and suffering because there are many things you don't understand. And your actions are going to cause you problems. There is suffering. And he said, you don't have to go into mind for this. You can just stay with your body. Because he said, there is stress because as soon as you're born, you have birth, growth and aging, illness, and death. And this is universal. This was way before people started studying biology in labs. There's a very firm biological footing on saying that if an organism is born, there is no escape. It's going to die. Yeah, guaranteed. It has to become aware that it is born which is very difficult. So there is going to be stress. <laughs> so that is noble. It's not going to change. As soon as you're born, you're not going to be aware. You'll be aware only after some time. Right. And that's when you adapt mm -hmm. and learn. Right? So there is stress or suffering. And the second thing he said was, there is an understanding of that. As you train your mind in concentration, you realize you can only change certain things. Certain things you cannot change because you don't know. You're going to grow into it. Certain things you don't know because you cannot do anything about it. Your death is something you cannot do anything about it. You're going to die. So he says you can't change that. But a strong realization of that is going to change your behavior fundamentally. Uh -huh. So he said, okay, so then training the mind becomes so important in his worldview. Right? Because all your views and actions and everything is coming from that mind which is not just your brain, but everything your endeavor involves. And so you said there is stress, there is the origination of stress, there is the cessation of stress. So every time you grow into the right direction, you can stop the stress, which is self-inflicted. And then the last one is you can end the stress. You don't have to interact in the wrong way with your environment. You can stop it forever, if you mature your mind, you'll realize that they can only change certain things and you will work hard to endeavor in that goal rather than trying to say you can, I don't believe in God, I don't do this, I don't do that. Those become nonsensical. What you believe in becomes nonsensical. What becomes sensical is what, what do you have faith in? He said the faith you have to have most is in yourself, it is in the ability of your mind to be trained. Right. That you can train it if you have the right instructions. And what do you trust most? He said the four noble truths. Because that will give you immediate feedback. You don't have to depend on gods and people and even me. But you have to depend, he said, you have to depend on the four noble truths. And so in that sense, you will be kind of accepting me as a teacher. So a lot of people came and said, so all I do is accept four noble truths. Yeah, but what do you do about it? 
you still have to learn <laughs> you have to learn the right view to make sure that you understand the four noble truths so what he did was he said if you want to use the eightfold path you have to use four noble truths okay. so what is your view your view is the understanding of the right kind of stress your right view is to understand how to overcome that okay. what are your actions to overcome and end that stress so he connected the four noble truths and the eightfold path okay. and he said the eightfold path will have to use the four noble truths to probe the environment your in- internal environment and the external environment and so you know that goes and then he goes further into that very very detailed where he talks about what is stress there's a whole treatise on what is suffering why does he call um, birth aging illness death suffering why does he call that and if you don't understand it what happens as a consequence he has very beautiful lectures he says if you don't understand the first step let's say you're a adolescent boy or girl who thinks that i can do many things right and you're not practicing any kind of meditation you're going to do many things and then what will happen a lot of actions are going to cause negative feedback from the environment be it your parents or your teachers or your cops depending on the extent of your <laughs> action so immediately the feedback is your reaction after that will be he says there will be sorrow lamentation it's very beautifully placed because sorrow is a state your mind doesn't know it's in a state of sadness helplessness right sorrow right then lamentation complaint then pain right because you don't know how to change the situation then you have distress see distress comes so the you stress distress comes there'll be distress because you completely helpless you don't know how to change the situation and then despair despair is a state of complete lack of confidence right you lose confidence so he says that's a point of learning you can learn from that even if you go to the second step you can still learn by going back to the first step realizing that you're born everybody is going to be born everybody will make mistakes everybody will learn but if you don't learn it's going to increase if you learn it will decrease so you can learn so he gives you the freedom to learn and then he takes you further into interactions he says if your association with things are not beloved if you are associated with a criminal you will commit crimes if you associate with the teacher who teaches you good things you learn so association with the unbeloved and dissociation from the beloved he talks about it so each one is like a module just like we talked about in evolution each one is kind of a module that you can train right so you can stop associating with your own behaviors you can stop associating with behaviors which are not to your betterment and your choice can be very easy because you have faith in the end of that path if you don't have faith in the end of the path this is where faith comes you trust that this will lead to the right kind of concentration which will reduce the stress and suffering and make your life easier and so you would dedicate your effort so what faith does is gives you the momentum to put an effort in something that you don't have the reward right away yes, the reward takes time mm-hmm. 
And I think same in evolution and adaptation. It takes time for all your actions to come back and tell you this is not an adaptive way of living this environment. Right? It takes time. By the time you know you get the signal coming into you through your artificial intelligence, you've already caused a lot of trouble for yourself. Right? So, but eventually, what he does is he says, you know, as a nutshell, uh, just to summarize it, he puts it in a nutshell. He says, because you are a constituent of states, yeah. you're a constituent of states, you being, let's say, for example, you being a male who is 30 years old, okay. who has um, a, a deep interest in music, for example, who wants to learn a guitar, who is not able to find a teacher. So you're all your constituents is going to make your choice and stress in a particular direction. The choices you're going to make is, how do I find a teacher? And how do I know the teacher is right for me or not? And then starting to learn with the teacher before you find actually he's not a good teacher, for example. So your constituents are always changing. So he says, that's important to learn because that is part of your mental makeup. How you constitute things is part of the stress and suffering. And that's when he goes into a new treatise. He, trans, he goes into a more advanced treatise, which is called, uh, he, call, he, he calls it, uh, the reason why we suffer is because we don't understand the clinging aggregates. That's a, a very detailed treatise about aggregation is, so aggregation again is very biological because he talks about form. So we are born in a particular form. We are a male or a female or a child or a man or a handicapped or an intelligent, whatever the state. If you think about human beings, close your eyes for a second. You can right now imagine somebody being murdered somewhere. You can imagine somebody winning a lottery. You, mean, you can imagine somebody learning something new. right? So you can, all those are constituents of your form. But you have come in a particular shape and form, right? So the, the, because you've come in a shape and form and stage of growth, you'll have certain feelings. Mm -hmm. So your form, feelings, and then based on the form and feelings, you'll have certain perceptions. Right? This is how the world is. This man is bad. This person is good. Right? You'll have certain perceptions. And based on the form, feeling, and perceptions, you'll have he calls fabrication. You'll say, this is how the world works. That's to the best of your understanding. To adapt and work with it, right? Not because you understand it fully, because you want to adapt and work with it. Right? That's why faith is important, he said, because when you trust that system of learning, you will end up. Your intentions will be much deeper than what you know. So you can probe into something you don't know and learn from it. And the last one is consciousness. So we started with consciousness, so I came about a round way, but the last of that aggregate is only the last one is consciousness. Uh -huh. So what we think, oh, we everything happens here. No. It happens way before that. And that's why I know that consciousness is not something that is between our head and it'll just go away when we die. Because our behaviors are observed by other people, by our children, by others, and they have learned that behavior. Oh, okay. Right? So the form, feeling, perception, fabrication is already shared. And consciousness is nothing but the container that takes it. 
So how can we discern that as something that is just between our heads, our consciousness? It cannot. Because then it becomes very clear that this form, feeling, perception, fabrication is an aggregate. And the aggregate is assimilated from where? From the environment. To make a certain kind of consciousness possible. So, so now if you combine this with the eightfold path, then it gives you a method of trading your mind. Because you can start to view or watch your views with reference to the four noble truths, right? And you can watch your actions, you know, speech. The speech is very interesting because that's a huge uh, barrier between your inside and the outside, mm-hmm. how you relate to the world. Mm-hmm. Right? And he says simply two few things. Say only things that are true. Say only things that are relevant. Right? Say only things that are true, relevant, say only things that are meaningful to the other person who's listening to. It may be totally relevant for the topic, but the other person doesn't have any meaning to what you say. Don't say it. It's just going to not uh, have a positive interaction. And then find out things you don't have to say. Because a lot of things you don't have to say. Because when you don't, when you avoid all the things you don't have to say, you will say the right things. Exactly, yeah, yeah. So that's another way of your internal world not undergoing any kind of stress when it's interacting with the external world, which is another human being, mm-hmm. be it your very close relative or somebody far away. So that so these are you know I found that you the reason I digressed a little bit is because it ties back to biology. Mm-hmm. It's it's not based on somebody coming from somewhere and giving you a text. It's based on methodical training. It's based on a system of learning. And it's something that I think we can use to change the way we think about how we work and how we look at things. Because a lot of times the actions we do is triggered by the stress. Because why? We are trying to adapt, right? Just like I told in biology, we are trying to adapt to a new kind of growth. But if that growth is destroying the environment, and getting rid of the very ecosystem that can sustain life for our children and children's children. Then we have to ask, is that an intelligent action? Because if you're doing it and you say, oh, somehow it will be changed. That means that, and then you use science as a reason to say that we will discover new things to correct the wrong things we're doing. Instead, we can ask, why shouldn't we stop doing the wrong things? Collectively, and how can we do it? I mean, how can we start doing it? How, how can we start? And so for me, that's why I don't feel too much pressure in terms of uh, just focusing on just research. Because mm-hmm. I could have been very driven in just research. But for me, research was a way of trying to understand the plants in a very intimate manner. Right, yeah. And in many ways, I always felt that because they're so adapted to the environment, Mm-hmm. And if you look at, uh, you know, one of the reasons I got attracted to Buddha's teachings is because if you look at a typical Buddha statue, you know, it's like a statue sitting in a garden surrounded by plants. Yeah. Serene. Right? Yeah? Very serene. Very, not just serene, not moving like a plant, eyes closed, yeah. not wanting to be disturbed. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of the elements I felt that 
was, you know, that the essential feel. Maybe that's what was synergistic for me to learn these things in many ways. And, you know, in a lot of these stem cell programs, I couldn't understand a lot of this just studying biology. But when I started practicing meditation and when I started to read more into how, uh, you know, his teaching, Buddha's teachings work with reference to how you train yourself. Okay. It became a much more interesting feedback of learning. Because okay. I realized that even the stem cells, they, when they become mindful and focused and concentrated to receive the signal from the environment yeah. in the correct way to adapt, mm-hmm. they have to follow a certain method. They have to say that I cannot become a leaf. I cannot become a stem. By saying I cannot become so many things, they become something else. And that something else allows them to observe. And that's what keeps the growth growing. Otherwise, they'll become a leaf and that will be done. It'll be a tiny plant. The reason you have a tree which is like 2,000 years old is because they've been repeatedly saying, no, I don't want to become a leaf. No, I don't want to become a stem. No, I don't want to become this. And because I don't want to become this, I want to be just observing. In many ways, a lot of the meditation training is the same thing. Because you're sitting still, you want to do many other things, you have so many other demands. But you're saying, for this next half an hour, I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that. I don't want to be disturbed. But it's not just I don't want to be disturbed, I don't want to do that. What are you going to do instead? A lot of that training is what are you going to do instead? Mm-hmm. How do you develop awareness and how do you develop that um, inside the view that allows you to see this? Otherwise, if you just sit quietly, your mind will start thinking about other things. Right. The thoughts will come and each thought is like a differentiated leaf. Right? So you're sitting there and making leaves. But the leaves are not fully functional because they just form and they fall because you're not using it. You might as well, you know, if you you might as well get up and do something and produce something. <laughs> so you have to find the right way of you know being quiet. So being quiet is not that's another beautiful thing in in uh, in, in 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 both in biology and in, uh, in meditation is that not doing anything is an activity. Right, because you have to realize you're not doing anything other than this watching and becoming aware. Okay. Uh-huh. Right. So that's an important part of learning. But then there's a lot of perplexity because you can ask, "What exactly should I do?" My mind is wondering, "What should I do? How do I do it?" And that's where a lot of the you know uh, the trust comes, uh-huh. trusting your own self that actually I can sit without letting my mind wander. There'll be a phase, there'll be a lot of struggle, the early phase, mm-hmm. to heck with it, or just fake it. You know, <laughs> All kinds of things can happen. But if you have total faith in it, and say, okay, how do I, so how do I, instead of, so you have to give the mind something to do, which prevents it from doing other things. I see. Mm-hmm. That's a trick. And so that is important. I was able to move that logic into these stem cells. Uh-huh. Right. 
So in the stem cell program in, in development and in evolution, these cells have been evolved to become master observers. And that has resulted in a lot of benefit for the organism because now they can perceive the stress and produce the organs that function at the right time and place, not just produce organs. So in a way, you can use that strategy. If nothing works, even if nobody is willing to listen to you, because they think, oh, that's all garbage. We don't have time to do all that. I want to keep producing things. You can just train yourself. And that's where Buddha says, you know, he says you have to have a lot of patience. Because sometimes maybe people won't listen to you in this lifetime. But at least you can make sure that you listen to yourself in this lifetime. Right. <laughs> because we might go through this lifetime not listening to ourselves. <laughs> See, so uh, let's wind up our session for the day. Sure, yeah. yeah. Um, so, I might have taken too much time. You know, I went into digress into other topics. That's really nice to go through all of that. But we have not covered so many topics yet. Okay. Uh, there are still many things that we did not talk about, but let's save that for a different day. <laughs> sure. sure. Okay. So it was really nice talking to you. Yeah. Thanks for listening. <laughs> and also, uh, we will do this again some other time. Sure.